Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success, whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. As we close out the month of January, many of us, myself included, are thinking about that initial progress that we've made on goals and how we'll stay true to our intentions over the next 11 months. You know, those first 31 days of the year are pretty easy by comparison, aren't they? But the bigger aspect is not being too hard on ourselves when we slip up. We will. It's not so much the slip up that really matters. It's the getting right back in there that matters more. Staying true to our intentions is an important component for building influence. Now, we don't always think about influence in that way. But what I mean by that is that at least one component of building and sustaining influence relates to how well we manage and treat ourselves. That of course includes how we take care of ourselves and also the compassion that we show ourselves. When we show ourselves compassion, we're much more likely to find and extend that compassion to others. For the month of January, I joined many of you in giving up my evening glass of wine or cocktail in favor of a month of detox, (laughs) a dry January, if you will. And I have to say, I do feel pretty good. I have even managed to pull off just a few COVID-related pounds. I still have a few to go. But uh, the dry January, along with a renewed love of my slow cooker um, really helped me get back on track, but that is a topic for another day. The most important aspect of all of this for me is that I'm really proud of myself for keeping the commitment that I made to me. Now, my husband joined me in this, which is super helpful to be aligned. And as you guys know, it's great to have a buddy and somebody to help keep you accountable. You don't have to have that, of course, but it can be really, really helpful. At least when he sneaked away to get donuts, he did so on a road trip with our son so that I wasn't tempted. I appreciate that. We won't hold that against him. But here's what I'm thinking about now. How do we ease back in without destroying all that great progress that we made? 
moderation. Okay, sure. But I have another practical suggestion that actually brings me to today's guest. I am really excited about her. Her name is Mara Smith. And she faced a similar challenge in that she couldn't find an alcohol that was clean, gluten-free, additive-free, ultra-premium, and also tailored for women. So she created one and in the process has reinvented herself as well. Mara launched Inspiro Tequila in 2021 with the help of Ana Maria Romero Mina. Now, she is one of the preeminent master distillers in the tequila industry in Mexico. Inspiro Tequila has zero sugar and zero carbs and is crafted from hand-selected 100% Blue Weber agave. Mara and I talk about what that means in this conversation and why that's so important to the way the tequila you drink looks and how it makes you feel the next day. Mara and I also talk about her journey, including what it was like to take a 17-year career break to raise her three kids, before getting the bug to launch a tequila company. Mara spent two years researching and fine-tuning the product, including during the COVID lockdowns, before bringing her vision for Inspiro to life. In today's conversation, we talk about Mara's journey, about what's involved in building a tequila business, and she shares her perspective on goal setting for the new year. Now, much like the clean tequila that Mara is crafting, Mara's focused on taking things off of her list rather than adding them on. I love this perspective because it reminds us that in order to have the time and the space to do the things that only we can do, it means that sometimes we have to offload those things that others can do just as well or maybe even better than us. That can be tough for me, and I suspect many of you as well. You are incredibly good at so many things, but the reality is you simply can't do everything. So it's a great opportunity to ask yourself, can someone else do this thing just as well? Now, before we jump into our conversation with Mara, I want to say just a quick thank you to all of you who join us each week, those of you who follow and download She Said, She Said podcast, and who share us with others, because you have helped to push us into the top 200 of all career podcasts in the U.S., not to mention our increasingly strong rankings globally. So thank you, a big, big thank you. Wherever you are listening from, I am grateful that you're here and I love that you're making this investment of your time with us. And now my conversation with Inspiro Tequila CEO, Mara Smith. Mara, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you, it's so nice to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you. So tequila, it feels like is having a bit of a moment. It is. It's it's become the drink of choice. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about what was it that inspired you to create this really interesting brand? How did you get here? Yes. Um, I guess I'm kind of a, a glutton for punishment. So I decided to enter one of the most highly regulated industries. <laughs> 
so my background is not in the spirits industry. I um, was formerly an attorney at a really large law firm in Chicago. And then I was in corporate strategy at a Fortune 100 company. Most recently, I was a stay-at-home mom raising my family. Um, I knew I always wanted to get back into the workforce and that it was going to be starting my own company. So that's something I had always kind of had my mindset on. Um, was thinking about different ideas. I kept coming back to tequila. I became a tequila drinker years ago. I've been gluten-free for over 10 years. Mm-hmm. I was looking for a cleaner, no-sugar spirit that I would still feel good the next day after drinking. So that became my drink of choice, and I started converting a lot of girlfriends over to tequila. Um, I think I just started realizing so many women actually were choosing tequila, and I didn't think any of the brands really focused on them as a primary consumer. I just thought there was a void in the market. I would look at the shelves in the local liquor store, and all the bottle designs are very masculine. Um, The marketing and positioning, it's scantily clad women or uh, dark scenes and cigars, just things that didn't really resonate with me. So I thought there was an opportunity to innovate as an outsider and also bring a female perspective um, because I also, you know, really discovered that there are so few women in the spirits industry. So I thought if I was going to do this, I wanted to, you know, bring another female voice and have women involved in every part of the process from creating the product, our famous female master distiller, to getting it on the shelves. Yeah. Okay. So there's so many aspects of your story that I that I want to dig into. I, I'd love for you to start, though, by describing for those who may not be as familiar or maybe haven't embraced tequila the way that a lot of that you have in a way a lot a lot of my friends have not all tequila is created equally let's start from the standpoint of what it is you're creating that's different from perhaps the tequila that i might have um have have experienced in college yeah <laughs> for example because that's not what we're talking about here yes there are a number of people who um, still have PTSD from some bad college exactly. experiences <laughs> with tequila and but they were not drinking 100% agave quality tequila so that there's a mixto and that means it only has to be 51% made from agave plant and the other 49% could be other sugars. So things that you're not gonna feel good after drinking. If you're drinking true 100% agave tequila, and it says it on the bottle, it will say 100% agave, that means it is bottled and manufactured in certain regions of Mexico, and it's bottled at the source, and it is just agave. So they're not adding other sugars. Now, there still is a little bit of a, you know, kind of a loophole there still because it may not be a mixed dough, which means it's mixed with other types of sugars, but um, there's still the ability to have additives. Even in a 100% agave tequila, mm-hmm. some brands will add um, glycerin or coloring or flavoring to impact the aromas or the flavor profiles. So that's another feature that I really wanted. I wanted it to be additive free. So we mm-hmm. actually our process is really the traditional methodology and we're confirmed additive free by tequila matchmaker in Mexico. Um, So it's just pure 100% agave. Um, So I think those are two things that differentiate like a good, really good quality tequila that you're, you're not going to have those after effects with. Right. 
Right. Absolutely. So you, how did you get from the point of, okay, I think there's a real hole in the market to actually developing the product and meeting and, and matchmaking with a master distiller. And you probably, I suspect you had to try a few people before you found that perfect match. This is a partnership of sorts, really, with this person who really helps you create the product that you want to put your name and your and your brand on. So maybe take us through this journey. You had left your corporate job because you were on bed rest with twins, as I understand it, right? Yes. So so talk us through sort of what happened next. Yes. So you know, I think entering into any new new industry is really difficult. I think the spirits industry also because people have been in it for a really long time, and I realized it's kind of small and everybody knows each other. So to gain credibility, um, I felt like I had to just do a ton of legwork. And I, I think it, it applies to anybody who wants to pivot or start something new. I just started educating myself, um, just researching and researching. So I would- Where did you start? How did you know how to even go yeah. about that? So I started researching the, the process, how tequila is made, reading articles. Um, There's so many resources out there that are readily available and you can really get up speed pretty quickly, right? Mm -hmm. I'd watch webinars. I read books. I listened to, I mean, I don't even know how many different podcasts on so many different subjects, you know, business <laughs> subjects that I listened to. Um, I took a course. I signed up to take a course through the CRT, which is the regulatory body in Mexico. And luckily they offered it in English. I was waiting and waiting to, for them to offer in English. And I took an online course so that I would be um, certified in the history and production of tequila. Mm -hmm. um, and I also had to, you know, build a community around this. So I would reach out to one person. They'd introduce me to someone. Um, I was fortunate to get connected rather early on to some consultants down in Mexico who could help me source a distillery because it was, this all happened during COVID from my kitchen and I couldn't get to Mexico. So I really just kept reaching out and connecting with people. Um, and as far as Anna Maria Romero, I read a book. Um, I, I ordered, I mean, so many books on tequila, but one of them was All the Women in Tequila. Um, and I will tell you, it's, it's, it's a pretty small book, but... Um, <laughs> But I read about all the women that are part of the process, and I literally went and narrowed it down to the few female master distillers, the few women-owned distilleries, um, and I came across Anna Maria Romero, and she developed this aroma wheel that is recognized in the industry and used, um, and the 600 aromas in tequila and which part of the production process they are created from. And I just, I really loved everything about her and her really artistic approach to it as well as she's very scientific as well. Um, and I just asked someone to make an introduction. I found, you know, the people that were working with me in Mexico, I said, can you find her? Can we see if we can work with her? Um, I had tasted some of her previous products. So we just got connected and she was able to see my vision. I, I had a good sense of what we wanted. We had done, we had run focus groups of female consumers. We had, done, you know, followed up with, surveys. And I had a, a really good idea of what I was looking for. And I wanted this really smooth and sippable tequila. And she was able to, I mean, create it and really bring it to life. And, you know, 
it was it was great that she could understand my vision, even if we're doing it remotely in two different languages over Zoom. Yeah, which is incredible. That's really incredible. Talk about is all a hundred percent agave tequila made in Mexico? Does it have to be made in Mexico? T talk to us about sort of that piece of this puzzle, because I've been surprised based on what I learned when I was doing research for the conversation today. I was really surprised at what I found. So maybe share share that with our audience. Yes. It's similar to champagne. So champagne, to be called champagne, it can only be produced in the region of champagne. Mm -hmm. So for tequila, there are basically five different states within Mexico. Um, the entire state of Jalisco, and then certain regions and areas of four other states. Ours is produced in Jalisco, Mexico. So um, it's the same thing. It's the appellation of origin. It has to be um, to be called 100% agave tequila, and even to be called tequila, it has to be sourced um, from those areas. To be 100% agave tequila, it has to be bottled, you know, manufactured, and actually bottled, bottled, sealed, and then brought in. Um, so we import it in, but it is all complete finished product when we bring it in. Mm -hmm. And that's required to be able to have that on the bottle. And so how complicated is it to do business in a foreign jurisdiction? You're a first-time entrepreneur, so you have a lot of business experience, both at, well as a CPA, as a lawyer, as a corporate executive, but this was your first real foray, as I understand it, into entrepreneurship, and then to sort of jump into the deep end of the pool and something that, frankly, is, so comp is as complicated as this, and to be doing business in a foreign jurisdiction. Talk about all of those elements and how you got your arms around that. Yeah. And, it's, and it's in a, a pretty short period of time too. Yes. Um, so first, the complexities of the industry, there's just so many compliance um, and, and compliance issues, regulatory issues. Luckily, because I had a legal background that I did not find so daunting. So the fact that you know, there are the issues of bringing in alcohol, there are certain ta excise taxes, there are, um, you know, state by state, every state has their own tax structure and compliance issues. So that part of it, I kind of could wrap my head around and figure out, you know, the importation requirements. I mean, honestly, um, I'm probably a fool for a client. I actually did all my own registrations online, my federal oh. registrations, my importer registrations. I'm like, oh, I can do this. It's not that hard. And, you know, I didn't want to pay a lawyer to do something I could do. So I, I really just did a ton of research to figure that part out. Now, working with a foreign country, it's just, it's difficult, especially given COVID. I couldn't get down there. I kept mm -hmm. scheduling trips and they kept getting postponed. Um, so I'm fortunate that I have some people there. I found consultants who could, you know, be on the ground for me. Um, but it is really difficult. It's kind of, you have a vision and it's your baby and you're not actually physically there. Um, there's also raw materials coming from another country. So I'm trying to, you know, work with a bottle manufacturer in China and getting raw material and then getting it to Mexico and coordinating that and then getting product out of Mexico here. Um, so fortunately the people that I have down there, this is what they do all the time is, you know, handle production for companies and help me bring it in. Mm -hmm. But I'd say, I guess the, the biggest highlight for me was when I finally got to Mexico and got to 
do my tasting and I had Anna Maria Romero leading a tasting and I had in front of me, you know, four different samples and I'm giving feedback and deciding which one and having my actual, you know, seeing Inspiro tequila in a glass and tasting it was just surreal for me. So actually getting there and, and, um, getting to kind of see it come to come to life was amazing. Yeah, that's incredible. Talk about the name. I know the name has special significance for you. Well, Inspiro means inspired. And it's funny because after I was just racking my brain for names and I actually finally went to an agency and said, you know, that would come up with a name. And all of a sudden it came to me. I was looking up words that would translate into Spanish to English and also be recognizable. And it's like, wait, this is all about being inspired. So I have two really strong women in my life who inspired me. Um, my grandmother, who is a Holocaust survivor, she passed away a couple years ago, but um, just the matriarch of our family and someone who really always um, believed in me. And, and the fact that I think she had the same respect for what I was doing at home taking care of family as my successful career outside the home. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. She also, given that she had very little formal education because she went into a concentration camp at a young age, she had incredible um, math skills and business acumen. And because I saw that from someone of her generation where typically women, that's not something, you know, areas where they would traditionally study. And I always was really focused on kind of mathematical areas. That's what I studied. And, college, I started studying engineering, then I moved in into um, actuary <laughs> studies, and then I end up in accounting. But I think seeing her and feeling that no one ever kind of discouraged me that, well, why wouldn't you study those, you know, those areas, I, I think I never realized until later, looking back, that, well, maybe there weren't really many women in my class, I just didn't pay attention. I think I was just right. so focused and driven. Uh -huh. um, so I think, having that kind of unconditional support. And then my mom is just um, a powerhouse and she has a number of causes that she feels very strongly about. And she is, she goes out there and she just gets it done. And so seeing two women who are just so strong and motivated and encouraged me, it really never occurred to me that I couldn't do whatever I wanted to. Yeah. Having that having that support system is so incredibly important. What about other people in your life? Because, you know, sometimes when you get ready to make a career pivot, even if it's something that's sort of been, you know, that you've had to pivot and maybe you're looking for something else, but the people around you who have known you in that previous life and you say, oh, by the way, I'm you, I wake up today and I'm going to be this and it's something very different from what you've been doing before. Sometimes it can be hard for those people to come along on your journey, at least initially. Talk about what your experience was either with your family beyond your mom and your grandmother, maybe your spouse or your kids or your friends. Talk about how they responded to this big career pivot for you. Yes. When I said all of a sudden I'm starting a tequila company, I actually was very, <laughs> uh, you know, I was actually really shocked because everybody was immediately on board. They just really? said, oh, well, if you're doing it, we know it's going to be great. Um, I was expecting to be questioned more and like, where did you get this? Why are you doing this? And everyone just super, super supportive. Um, my husband, I thought he would think I lost my mind and 
no piece, like, great, great idea. I think everyone knows that when I go to do something, I'm going to be really well informed and I'm not going to kind of just throw something at the wall and see if it sticks, that it's going to be, there's going to be a ton of due diligence and research and background behind it. Yeah. I actually think the thing that people were most surprised, the biggest pivot I made in my life was when I left the workforce to stay home and raise a family. That's what I think nobody ever expected of me. And I frankly didn't ever expect of myself. Um, I was so myopic in my focus and um, just moving at such a fast pace that it never occurred to me to think that there are other alternatives or options until it suddenly was forced <laughs> on me. Oh, you're put on emergency bed rest, like you're done. <laughs> so I think that was actually what surprised people the most. Yeah. How, how, how long were you home with your kids before you decided to, to embark on this entrepreneurial venture? About like 17 years. Seriously. Wow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, time. that's so interesting because so much of the time, and I know you probably have friends like this as, as well, but it can be re once you hit that five to seven year mark, it can be exponentially more difficult for women to go back into the workforce for a host of reasons. Maybe talk about how, you know, why that wasn't as, as difficult for you. Maybe it was, but you have, you know, a process or something that you turned to that helped you over the hump. But how did you make that leap? Did you have self-doubts about getting back in and sort of second guessing yourself in a way that sometimes we we do when we've taken a break for a period of time? It's not that we're not capable. It's just that I think we can get sort of set in our own heads about what we're doing and we'll start to second guess ourselves at about that five or seven year mark. So talk about what your experience was like. That yeah. is so fascinating to me. Um, well, I definitely, definitely uh, doubted myself and I still do. I mean, the fact that you asked me the time period, I never reflected and thought about it because a lot of moms, me included, feel like we kind of have to cover up that gap in the resume. Right. So I kind of brush over it often. And now I'm going back and thinking, I really think it's a really important message for other women yes. that it's not too late and that you can pivot and you can reenter. I'm a firm believer that there's just so much untapped, you know, talent out there and skill. And just like many other women, I also feel like I, you know, doubted myself, didn't appreciate, okay, all the skills I acquired prior to being home, I still have those. And that I've actually acquired a lot of new skills as a parent. And I think sometimes we don't really value that as much. And that's- yeah that I hope I can point out that those are valuable. I mean, I can multitask like nobody's business, right? I had like right. preemie twins. Um, efficiency, how efficient, how, how I can get things, you know, done. And it all applies to a business as well. And flexibility. I mean, listen, with kids, nothing ever goes according as plan it's a plan. I might have a kid walking through my background now. Um, <laughs> and same with business, right? there's always a challenge and I have to pivot and come up with plan B, plan C or plan D. But I think we often don't reflect on that and think about, mm -hmm. oh, I've actually acquired a lot of skills. There are a lot of things that I learned and they make me qualified to run a business or get back into the workforce. So um, even though I continue to doubt myself, I try and reinforce 
those messages. And I, I really, that's a very important piece of all of this for me also is that I can provide that message to other women that I think sometimes I feel like, okay, well, it's too late. I've been, I've been out. It's too late to start something new. But as I said before, there are resources out there. If you want to learn something new and you want to educate yourself on something, I mean, there's access to so much out there that you can actually do it. It's not easy. I'm not going to make it sound like it was super, you know, like easy and just like, okay, I just start a company. Um, it's a lot of work that goes into it. Right. I think my kids probably, you know, maybe for them, it was the biggest change because things that I normally would take care of. Now I'm like, well, you can handle that. You do it. You know, <laughs> I said to my son recently, I mean, he's 19, but he asked me, I need, you know, new pants. I said, well, that's not really a good use of my time right now. So you should go online and find pants. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's a big transition for them when they're used to someone that handles all of those things. But I don't think it's a bad thing to put more responsibility on them. Yeah. And, you know, I hope I can show that there's possibility to do things. You know, we often talk about, and I hear interviews, and there's a, a, a number of amazing female entrepreneurs, but often they're saying, I came up with this because I was in college or in grad school. And there's something to be said for being a little more seasoned and having some experience, whether it's life experience, corporate experience, um, and going back in and starting a company. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's something about what you said that came up in a conversation <clears throat> with the two founders of a company called Woodley and Lowe, and they are a tween teen lifestyle active wear brand that's that's kind that's kind of brand new. They've been around a couple of years, but it's very focused on the young women. It's focused on a on a body positive image. But these uh, these two women are they're entrepreneurs, but they're in their like late 40s. So this is sort of a second or third career act for them. And in our conversation, we talked about the fact that sometimes the risk taking is so much easier when you're younger and don't know as much. It's, it's this weird irony that when you're older and you're actually more experienced and more qualified, you'll tend to second guess yourself sometimes more than you did when you were in your 20s and 30s. Maybe talk about how you think about that aspect, because when, when they said that, I was like, yes, that's absolutely right. It comes up so often. Um, it, has that been true for you? And if so, how did you plow through that self-doubt? Yeah. So I think for me, it was maybe a little bit of the opposite. So I was so focused on, on taking a very secure path. Right. So I studied accounting and then worked at a big accounting firm for my internship. And then I went straight to law school and worked at the largest law firm in Chicago at the time. I I only kind of thought of a very secure route. Right. I had to pay off my law school debt. So I was going to take this straight route. I don't think I ever looked at the possibilities. Like if I was going to go back and tell my younger self a message, it's that there's a whole world out there, a ton of different ways you can apply and use your you know accounting and legal degree. But I don't know that I saw that then. And I thought I had to go just work really, really hard to make the next step to kind of what a very straight um, kind of job and roles, you know, the jobs would be. And so now I actually, for, for me, I've, I'm more I'm willing to take more risk now. So 
now I see, oh, wow, there are so many different opportunities and things out there. Um, and I mean, it could be also, I listen to more inspiring stories. I read books by all these founders. I listen to podcasts with interviews of founders like those and, uh-huh. and watch webinars. And maybe that inspires me that, oh, you can, there's more access now to hearing all those stories and how people have done that than maybe when I was younger and Absolutely. there were no podcasts. Yeah. Um, so I think those inspire me and, you know, it's also my husband and I have worked for years and years and years. So I am very fortunate, but I have the financial stability to be able to, to also do those, do those things and start something, right? I wouldn't have had that at graduating law school at 25. I had a ton of loans. I had to get, you know, I just had to have a really secure job. I put my husband through business school when he went back to school. So um, then we had young kids and babies, like that wasn't the time. So I think actually for me, being a little bit older going in, Uh I maybe am now, you know, able to take on a little more risk because um, I just have the ability to do that now. Yeah. Having that financial stability, I think is so key. And oftentimes it's something that we don't always talk about as openly, um, especially as women, we don't always talk about that as openly as we should. Um, and the importance of that, and frankly, the impact that having that financial stability can have on your confidence, right? When you know, okay, doesn't work out. So what? It really is not that big a deal. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a really important um, piece. To that end, maybe talk a bit about, because a lot of times when I have female founders on, the conversation inevitably will uh, revolve around fundraising and how you go about raising money for your business. Do you go the VC route? Do you go the bootstrapping route? Do you invest your own money? What does that look like? And maybe talk about the decision that you made as it relates to starting Inspiro. Yes. So my decision was to bootstrap and we're still bootstrapped. There's a number of reasons why. One, I'm, you know, I have a financial background. My husband has a financial background. I'm really, I'm very aware of when you're just starting up, especially if you're pre-revenue. I mean, now we just started selling because we're out of the market now, but uh, valuations and that I get a really bad valuation. Um, I'm also cognizant of the fact that I am a solo entrepreneur. I have so many things on my plate. I'm wearing so many hats. The fundraising process would really take up all my time, right? right? I'd be pounding the pavement all the time. I just have no more capacity at this point. And I think lastly, even like looking at friends and family and an angel round slash friends and family, I really wanted to have proof of concept first. Mm. So for me, before I take on, you know, money from our friends and family, I just wanted to show some traction and that it works. And, and that's just more of, I guess, me feeling like I don't want to risk someone else's um, money, even though everyone knows when you invest in a startup, there's, you know, risk and no guarantees. But that's kind of how I thought about it. Like, Mm -hmm. let me just do it as long as I can and get it, you know, up and running and started. I also think um, we somehow perceive and there's this perception of um, you kind of that getting this... um, you know, VC money is like the ultimate and everyone kind of brags about, I raised this much money and this much money. Well, 
that comes at a price, right? Right. There's a cost to that. There's a cost of your equity. There's also the cost of, I have this vision and I really want to see my vision come to fruition. And I'm not ready to give that, give that up. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I understand that that, you know, that that can happen. So I think there's like lots of alternatives to look at. If it's, mm-hmm. I don't know if mine's crowdfunding, but crowdfunding, angels, friends and family. I also think people um, tend to overlook loans, like small business loans or access to capital that doesn't involve, you know, giving away equity. So that's kind of where I've been at. And again, that's because I'm very lucky and because we've worked for a very long time in our life so that I can do it and bootstrap for now. Right. Um, I, I understand that's not everybody's situation, so they may need to go raise money right away. But I just always think, always tell people, look at all the different options and be really careful where you're taking money, who you're taking money, and kind of what you're giving up. Yeah. Any advice for, uh, I mean, what what you've just laid out in terms of advice, I think is so incredibly important. And it really gives folks a lot to think about as it relates to how do you make those decisions, but maybe advice for where the best places to turn are if someone listening doesn't have the tremendous legal and accounting background that you have maybe some resources to turn to, to help them evaluate how they might go and secure funding or make a decision about whether to bootstrap, which obviously you need your own resources to do that first and foremost. If that's not an option, what are the alternatives? Maybe where to turn to for advice? Yes. Well, I think there's a couple things. One, um, I fund women, which has a platform for crowdfunding. It's not, it's not equity crowdfunding, mm-hmm. but um, I just sign up for the coaching sessions through them and it's, it's very reasonably priced and there are people there to help you put together, um, you know, your pitch and a pitch deck and, uh, you know, um, how you convey your message and even advice on like funding options. So I think that's a really great resource. Um, I think there are a number of, especially for female founders, there are so many, there are a lot of angel groups that you know, specifically try and invest into women. And um, I think like Global Investor maybe has like a site where they list like all the resources and all the different um, angel groups that invest in women. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a resource. I actually just met with the First Women's Bank of Chicago last week. They just opened. I mean, what an incredible concept. Here's a bank dedicated to providing, you know, lending and small business loans to minority-owned, women-owned businesses. So, looking at resources like that, uh, I think I think there's a lot out there if you um, do research. I mean, I know a group, um, a venture that basically just puts together SPVs, special purpose vehicles, just mm-hmm. to invest into different women-owned businesses. So. There are groups out there. I just think you need to find those lists. And that's where I would start. I mean, even if I'm not, even if I'm bootstrapped and not doing funding, the one of the first things I did is built out an entire spreadsheet of all of those resources. So as soon as I do need to fundraise, I'm ready. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's great advice and perspective. And in many respects, 
a lot of those resources are resources that certainly didn't exist 20 years ago. Many of them didn't exist even five or 10 years ago. So a lot of this is new information, new resources that are there and available to people. So I think that's really, that's an important reminder. Maybe let's talk a little bit about um, the, you know, the customer that you're serving, you're serving women, you have thought about this concept from the standpoint of how the bottle looks and feels to your advertising. Maybe talk a little bit more about how you stay connected to her. I mean, the brand is just getting started. You're just hitting the shelves. We should talk about where people can can buy Inspiro as well. I've just gotten my first bottle, as I mentioned to you, which I'm really excited to try with my friends. Um, but talk about the connection to your your uh, target customer, where we can find it, some of those considerations as well. Great, and I'm so glad you got your bottle. Um, <laughs> and it so, is gorgeous, by the way. It really is you. gorgeous. Thank you. Um, so I feel like the reason I know this consumer is because I am this consumer. So I think about our consumer as someone who's very thoughtful, right? They they care about what they eat or, eat and drink. That's you know, probably why they would choose tequila as a cleaner option. And they care about who they purchase from and the companies they support. And that's how I am as a consumer. So, you know, in in general, if you're offering really high quality, great product with this beautiful bottle that looks so nice to display, and, you know, I really wanted the quality inside to match the bottle outside. And it does, and we've gotten great feedback on the taste profile. So Given that, you know, and and our consumer, if, if she has the choice to support, you know, a, a company that's women-owned, operated, created, women are involved in every step of the process, I think if she knows that message that she would want, you know, she would tend to want to support that kind of company. Um, and so because I think I know her, I think we also kind of know where to find her. So we have social you know, social media and we, but I think even more than social media, I'd say like our newsletter or our blog, I try to just provide information that I would want to know, right? I'm, I've always been the person that my friends call and say, okay, what are the new cleaning, what cleaning products do I need? Um, what should I get for the season? What are, you know, I'm hosting a party. Where should I order from? I'm kind of always been that go-to resource. Um, for advice or new brands and products. So that's actually what I really have a lot of fun doing uh -huh. in our blog and our newsletter is like, oh, here are my top five finds of like beauty products I like. And every single thing that I recommend is something that I would recommend and use. So in fact, someone tried putting together a list for me and they put something on. I'm like, I would never carry that. I'm like, that bag is not anything I would ever wear. We have to take it off. So um, so it's really, really authentic. And, and that's kind of where I think I find her in creating a community. I also am very involved in a number of women's organizations. And I feel like that's where my consumer is also, right? Yeah. Just organizations of women, um, founders and leaders and, um, and I love connecting with other founders. I, I've done like, I'm a part of Hey Mama. I think I've done four different mentoring groups so far because I love doing them. I get a great mentor who's another founder. I meet people in the group. I really take advantage of all those opportunities, right? Where we being certified, I join every time they have some kind of cohort that I can be part of. So I think connecting 
with all those people. Um, that's also how I build a community mm-hmm. and find my consumer. And right now we're online on our website, inspirotequila.com. That's where we're selling. We're also on three other um, kind of curated uh, tequila marketplaces. It's a sip tequila, ferment and still, and um, Old Town tequila. Mm-hmm. But, you know, our our plan is to be in retailers in 2022. It's because of the com- complexities of the laws that have been in place since 1933, right. post-prohibition, that I need a distributor. Every single state I want to enter into, we have to have a distributor. So, um, and obviously this time of year, um, during the end of the year when it's holiday craziness, it's impossible to do that now, but that's our plan for beginning of 2022. So people can really find us, um, you know, on their retail shelves as well. But right now it's, as you saw, it's really easy. You buy it online, it gets shipped and delivered right to your house and we yeah. sell across the country. Yeah, it's beautifully and very securely packaged. Everything arrived perfectly in this gorgeous box. Um, it was an absolute flawless experience, so I can I can speak to that. And I'll have to update listeners on the taste as soon as I've had a chance to open the bottle because I've been too busy to actually crack it open. So I'm excited to do that as well. Um, Mara, I would love for you to maybe share with us a couple of your um favorite books, uh, favorite resources that you have dipped into, something that you really learned a lot from maybe this year or or just something that you keep going back to? Do you have any favorites that you would share with our audience? Oh my gosh. So I read a, a lot, a lot of books and listen to a lot of books. So I was, um, so if I narrow it down, I'll do some of my most recent ones uh-huh. because I don't know how many books I consume in like the year, but um, Drop the Ball by Tiffany Dufu. So that one for me um, it resonated on a very personal level of how to prioritize. And actually, she's the one who says kind of set your set your goals and how you should hand things off based on those goals, uh-huh. which that's kind of where I came up with the story of telling my son to order his own pants because I was like, well, that's not good use of my time. And then I, I read the book and my husband sent me, you know, an, an enterprise bill that they overcharged us. And as we all know, getting on the phone with that would take like hours of my day to try and get through to a manager who's manager to, you know, fix my bill. And I said, I don't think that's aligned with my objectives. So <laughs> I'm not going to handle it. I love that. <laughs> so her book, I just think it's really great practical advice of like this never ending to-do list. Mm-hmm. It's not just me. I think there's, you know, there are tons of women who have this kind of never ending to-do list and really had to pare it down and take some things off the to-do list because it's it's never going to be done. Yeah. And, so and not that, feel guilty about that, right? Take things off the list and not be, oh my gosh, I'm not doing a great job as a, you know, this, that, or the other, right? Totally. And I, so I think I, I felt like I learned a lot on how to like manage personally from that book. Um, and I'd probably say there are a number of female founders books that I I really, really like them. Great messaging. And I think Jamie Schmidt from Schmidt's Naturals, uh-huh. her uh, Supermaker book. First of all, she she entered a new industry after having a child already. So I always find that really fascinating. Um, and she says since she's since sold her business, but uh, I follow her on LinkedIn and things like that. She provides great, just really good messaging to founders. And I thought it, and I thought she 
had a very honest portrayal of the ups and downs, not just showing how everything, you know, was a success, yeah. even though it ended up being a, a huge success, but really showing the whole process and how difficult it was yeah. to, you know, build a su successful company. I love so that. So I think I, that's another one. Yeah, I, I, I love those. I'll include links to each of those. And those are some that are new to me. So I'm going to include links to those in the show notes for the episode that folks so that folks can download them and buy them. And I will put them on my reading list as well. Because we are looking at uh, a start of a new year as we're having this conversation, any um, strategies that you employ and find really helpful at both um, helping you with reflection, with goal setting, with prioritization, anything that you're doing maybe a bit differently in addition to highest and best use <laughs> and really adhering to that. But do you have a have a set goal setting strategy uh, for you, for yourself personally? I'm sure you do for the business, but for you personally. Um. Yes. So I try, I've done this for years. Um, actually last year, my kids and I, we all wrote on a big um, like poster board, what our goals are for the next year. But somehow that also adds more pressure for me. And I already feel like I put a lot of pressure on myself. Mm -hmm. So now I think my goal is figuring out what I can, as opposed to the things that I want to necessarily accomplish, what I can take off my plate. So I'm really trying to live by the Sarah Blakely quote. If anybody, if someone can do something 80% as well as you can, let them do it. So I think that's actually more of my goal is how I can outsource and have other people take on things, give up a little bit of control, which is very hard for me to do. I like control and I'm uh, very detail oriented, but really to let some of those things go that yeah. if it gets done and it's. 80% as well as maybe I would have done it to let someone else do it. So I think that's a little bit more as opposed to adding more on my plate. Mm -hmm. It's how I can, things that aren't really necessary for me to do. I want to reprioritize and right the work things I want to get done. And then when it's family time to make that quality family time, if I'm spending the time I have with my nine-year-old and it's running around you know, and that's what I'm doing, my target pickup and cleaning and all that, that's taking away from my time with him. So figuring out how I can kind of take those things that don't really bring me a lot of joy right, or connection with people and take those off my plate and, and have more time for the things that are really meaningful for me. Yeah. I love that. That's such good advice. Mara, our big theme for this season has been a real focus on influence. And so I love to ask guests, what does influence mean to you? How do you think about this concept of influence? To me, it's setting an example. I mean, when I think of like the people that are influential to me, it's people who have set a really good example. And I feel like when I want to be of influence to other people, it's also by setting an example. No matter what success I have in business, my ultimate success is based on my three children and how they, you know, turn out. And that's, those are the people I care about my influence on the most. And I think about that as setting an example. Um, I have two sons, I have a daughter. So I hope I set an example, especially for her, how women can do many things and have maybe many different phases in life. And I also encourage her that she can do anything she wants. I mean, my daughter's pre-med in college and I would never tell her, oh, that's a long road or, 
you know, maybe you should find something else where you'll finish earlier and can start a family because I completely believe in her and support her. So I guess that's what I would think, you know, and they're, they're the most important people for me to have a, a really good influence on. Yeah. I love that. That's great. So Mara, what's next for the brand? Well, next is that we are going to hopefully be in retailers. So that is the plan for 2022. Um, especially in my backyard, I'm in Chicago. So I'm going to really focus on inch wide mile deep and building it here in Illinois. Um, and then, you know, scaling to different states. Um, so that's really exciting for us because we want people to also be able to find us on their retail shelves. Um, and then just partnering with some different organizations so that we can support and give back. So part of my mission has always been that I want to also give back and support other female founders. Um, my long-term plan is that I've always really believed that if women-owned businesses become successful, then you have more women to invest back into other female founders. And that's how we're eventually going to, you know, level the access to, to capital. So that's always been kind of my long-term goal is like, let's see where I can take this so that I have the ability to also invest back in. Love that. Um, but for now, we do have this, my Inspiro Purple Bicycle Project. And the whole concept behind that is how I want to support other founders. So if it's providing small grants to help um, another founder, you know, get started. And I also think the part that's more exciting to me is to offer some kind of, you know, mentoring or advisory services for other female founders to get started. I feel like I've learned so much during my process. And I've also been the lucky beneficiary of having so many people offer guidance and support. And I reached out to just, I don't even know how many other female founders and leaders and all of them have been really willing to take some time. So I want I want to pay it forward. And and I actually do that by I answer every single person that LinkedIn messages me, emails me, DMs me. I I, I answer and I meet with every single one of them because I feel like I've been so fortunate. Yeah. And I learn something from every conversation. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's amazing. Why do you why do you call it the purple bicycle? <laughs> well, the story's on our website, but um it just came to me a long time ago. I said, okay, whatever this initiative is going to be, it's going to have to be about the purple bicycle. Because when I was four years old, um, I coveted this, like, whatever, I think it was like a 24 inch or 26 inch purple bicycle that was in my garage, like the shiny bicycle. I was, did not know how to ride a two wheeler. And I was a very small child. So it was way too big for me. And my parents were like, you cannot ride it. You're not gonna be able to ride it. And so to prove everyone wrong, I started in the morning and got on, I could not actually reach the pedals and sit on the seat at the same time. So I stood the entire day riding. I kept falling over. I remember like falling into a fence and crashing over until by the end of the day I was riding. I still couldn't sit on the seat, but I was just standing all day and until I was finally riding it just to prove everyone wrong. Um, I was pretty stubborn like that. Um, <laughs> but, so when I thought about, okay, that's my whole premise behind this is really showing people that you can do it. And even if people tell you, especially 
right? We talked about getting going back into the workforce. People say, right. well, you don't have any industry experience or you've been out of the workforce too long or things like that. So I thought that's the whole message that I have is you can still, you can do it. I mean, it took a lot of grit and determination and lots of, you know, falls. But at the end of the day, I felt like I had this like newfound independence. I love that. What a great story. Um, we could spend lots more time talking, but I really loved this conversation. This is, it's an incredible brand that you've built. I know that our friends listening out there will be very in inspired by what you've done and by the fact that you took a 17 year break to raise kids and then jump back in. I love that element. All your, your whole story is very inspiring, but I especially love that piece of it. And I know that my listeners will as well. So Mara, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Friend, thanks so much for listening. I'd love to hear what from this conversation resonated most with you. You can reach me via the contact link on our website at she said, she said podcast.com or via my social media channels. You'll find me at Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Also, I'd love it if you shared your thoughts in a review of this episode. Most of all, I hope you found this investment in you worthwhile. Until next week, take care. She Said, She Said podcast is produced weekly by She Said, She Said Media.